Nowadays, it's increasingly harder to be anonymous. It seems like everybody wants to know what you're up to. Friends watch us through social media. Companies want to know your shopping habits. Your phone even watches where you're going. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. In reality, there are tons of ways your private data is leaking out. Surprising ways. Ways you've probably never even considered. So how can we get a little privacy in today's world? Is that even possible? How can we protect ourselves? This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to our society, culture, ethics, history, and the future. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. The person that we're talking to today is the owner of a privacy company. The supporters of this podcast will have access to a discount code for a yearly subscription to help keep their own data private. If you're not a patron of the podcast and you want to become one, you can learn more at patreon.com sparkdialogue or on the website at sparkdialogue.com. Thank you to all my supporters for helping to keep this podcast running. Hello, I'm the co-founder and CEO of ABIND, the online privacy company, Rob Chevelle. There's actually a surprising number of ways that information about us leaks out when we are using the internet. Sometimes we're actively giving away information, but other times we aren't doing anything but simply being online. We like to characterize the ways that pretty much everybody's data is uh, getting into databases and uh, and online into three different buckets or categories. One is when we open up our browsers on our phones or on our computers, there's a whole lot of data that just leaks out about us, uh, where we go, what we search for, websites we visit, the apps we uh, use uh, that we never even see. It's just leaking out all the time and being shared with ad networks and other third parties that are pretty much invisible to us. That's that's sort of category number one. Category number two is something everybody's familiar with and is very visible as opposed to invisible. It's when we fill out forms, create accounts, uh, enter our information into the internet. And then the third category of information is uh, data about us that's already out there that we never actively uh, manipulate, create, share, see or don't see, but is already out there. And that's sort of this data broker industry that has and exchanges, buys and sells uh, information about us completely asynchronously to anything that we're actively doing. So again, the data that we leak out, that leaks out when we're browsing uh, and doing the things that we do on the internet invisibly, the data that we're giving out uh, when we have to create accounts, go shopping, do all the normal things that we do online uh, and fill those things, uh, fill that those credentials of ours into forms. And then three, all of this uh, information and profiling that's happening about us in the back end by different data brokers. Some people think, well, why should I care? I'm not hiding anything. I'm not engaged in illegal activity or do things that would embarrass me if my neighbors found out. Why should I put so much effort into being concerned with online privacy? The reasons to be concerned with privacy aren't, importantly, that that any of us have some nefarious uh, criminal activity to hide. What I say to these folks that ask me, and, and it's a t- perfectly legitimate question, what I say to people is, why do we have curtains on all on 99% of our houses? 
Uh, is it because we have something to hide when we walk by our window from our neighbors? No. It's because we enjoy a sense of freedom, comfort, uh, and so forth when we're walking around our house, our houses, that has nothing to do with hiding some kind of um, meth lab that we have in our in our living room. And I think there's an important analogy there between what's going on with our data online, uh, which is to say that we don't really know who is snooping through those uh, windows into our online lives and what what information they're putting together about when we walk around, what clothes we're wearing, what we're doing, and how they're using that in different contexts unbeknownst to us. So for example, do employers get information about that and look at the potential to hire us or not hire us? Do insurance companies, healthcare uh, providers, do hackers and identity thieves. Uh, so all of this information that's floating around out there about us is not just about protecting against a specific harm or hiding things. It's protecting against the unknown use and unwanted use of our information in context to make decisions about us that we may never be aware of. It is indeed sometimes hard to think about because it requires a little bit of a chess move between, you know, several different jumps on a board to realize that, hey, there's information about me, even though I have nothing to hide, that might be used in the future to do something uh, that I'm not comfortable with. Let's take one example of an activity we all do, shopping. This could be in person, but it could also be online. Now, especially in the days of COVID, More and more of us are doing our shopping through an app, by ordering online and having things delivered to our homes, or even just window shopping online. All the while, companies are gathering data about us. What's happening, whether we're being tracked when we shop by facial recognition cameras and by our credit cards and our mobile phones, or we're being tracked uh, when we go to an e-commerce site like Amazon uh, or Netflix, What's happening is uh, not just the website that we're visiting is tracking us and not just the store that we're in, but that data is also being shared with many, many different third parties. Those third parties typically use it to analyze our habits and sell that information through a whole set of marketplaces to other uh, businesses that believe, uh, that have marketing departments usually that believe that our, you know, one one uh, behavior of ours indicates that we might be good customers for a future uh, product and service. Now, I would say that that's not the worst thing in the world. And even uh, as the founder of a privacy company, having my online shopping behavior tracked is not uh, my number one concern. A lot of people talk about ads following them on the internet and how concerned they are about that. But I actually don't think that's like the biggest and most important reason to protect your online privacy. But at any rate, there's a very sophisticated industry that looks at our our, uh, physical shopping and our commerce shopping and sells that data. Let's say you make a purchase online. From just browsing to your final purchase, information is being collected about you all the while. When you go to any commerce site, you first hit the home page and then you view some items, you put them in your shopping cart. All along the way, you have been sharing 
your IP address, other sites you visited, your potentially your recent search history with whoever, whatever ad networks and tracking uh, software that e-commerce site uses. And on average, based on our data from our from our product that we have that blocks those third-party trackers, on average, e-commerce sites use 12 different third-party pieces of tracking software. Then, uh, to make matters worse, once you actually get serious and go to the checkout page, uh, there's another party uh, that happens with Facebook, uh, Pixel, uh, picking up uh, that you that you actually bought something, your credit card company, the payment processor that they use to actually run the charge on your credit card, and all of that data becomes part of a large ecosystem that most of us have no idea about. And for the most part, it is used benignly to track us and figure out if we are similar to other customers who would buy things. So again, the problem needs to be, I'm not trying to raise the alarm and be one of those, hey, the, the privacy barn is, is burning people. I think the real problem isn't so much that we get advertisements that are targeted to us, perhaps, but it's really the way that this data then spreads out and is used in much more concerning context that bothers me. Sometimes I like to get a targeted ad. It's not the end of the world. Uh, although I do, as a habit, block these trackers from um, getting my information. Many times we're told that our shopping data is anonymized, that companies are actually using data about many shoppers at once in aggregate. Perhaps this makes us feel safe, but there's a lot more to that picture. The industry is very, very opaque on this point. And they use the word anonymous data all the time. Their lawyers tell them it's okay to use it. They paint it on the sides of their businesses and wave it around on their privacy policies. To be simple and candid about it, we don't believe that almost any of this data is anonymous. And we think that's a problem. And we think there's no transparency to verify whether uh, what they're saying is true. And if you look at the data that comes out from these same companies that say all their data uh, that they pass around is anonymous, if you look at the data breaches when they lose data by accident or when it's stolen, it's never anonymous. The records are always full of different levels of personal information, whether it includes our credit card number, our account number with that uh, business, our uh, home address, our, our social security number, God forbid, those kinds of personal pieces of personal information are usually lost. So, uh, you know, what we, what we scratch our head and say, how can the industry be anonymizing all this data? And yet, whenever they lose uh, big sets of data, it's always full of personal information. Doesn't make sense. Even if the data is truly anonymized, we have to realize the power of what AI can do. Even in an aggregate form, AI and machine learning can infer all sorts of things about you. If you want to see this at work, there's a great example. It's how the British Crown could have captured Paul Revere if they had metadata of what was happening in the future United States. Metadata is sort of like high-level data. Data about data, if you will. By making connections within this metadata, they could have stopped Paul Revere's midnight ride. I'll share that link with you in the show notes. This can be used with anonymized data, too, to figure out information about you even from a set of anonymous data and make inferences about you, whether they might be right or wrong. 
let's take an example of the author of a particular uh, written piece of text, whether it's a, a news article or uh, you know a short book or a, an entire book. There are certain patterns of words and sentences and combinations of sentences and words and so forth into paragraphs that each of us, uh, when we write, unconsciously use. And once you get about three or four pages in, as I understand it, you know, sort of a thousand plus words, the ability to uh, figure out if you already have a database that links somebody's identity to uh, things they've written, say, if you're Google and you have Gmail, where you have tens of thousands of, of uh, paragraphs of written text by almost a billion users of your email service, it becomes trivially easy for a machine learning algorithm to iterate through a piece of quote unquote anonymous text and identify it with 99 plus percent accuracy back to an individual. And that is just one example. There are many, many uh, examples like that, and they're not all just the written word. They also have to do with behavioral data, mobile phone uh, location, gate analysis. Uh, as the data streams come in and get stored in databases, the problem becomes easier and easier. And the way that these machine learning algorithms work is if you imagine you know, the smartest uh, person in your, your math class, whether, whether you're in high school or, or college, they're sort of, you know, thousands of times better than that person at re recognizing patterns. And every time they get a pattern right, they learn even faster about how to recognize the next pattern. And so we are being uh, outmatched by these machines' ability to do pattern rec recognizing patterns and deducing us as individuals from from data streams, uh, whether it's writing or, uh, you know, or other kinds of data streams that we're creating, the uh, AI engines are uh, going to be uh, and, and are already close to almost flawless if they get enough data. When we shop in person, we face another privacy problem. Combine all of those cameras looking at us with facial recognition that's becoming more sophisticated every day. And while facial recognition might not be used in every store, it is being used in many different ways, and we might not be that far off from that kind of future. The bad news here, whether we're talking about the ability for facial recognition to discern when we walk by a store, whether we're perfectly identifiable, or whether a machine learning algorithm can deduce who we are just from a pattern of anonymized data. The unfortunate truth is that technology is getting way, way better, faster than anything else is changing. And so the ability to correlate information and then deduce individual identity is basically advancing at an exponential rate. And so that is going to be a huge, huge problem that uh, we're all going to need to address as a society because the technology is going to force us to address it. On this topic of facial recognition, when we walk into a store, I know it's something that you know has been talked about a lot. The one question to ask is, where does that stop? If you have a camera pointed at the door of a store and you you walk in there as a customer and they can identify you, well, does the camera also see when you walk by this down the street and you're not a customer of that store? 
and it goes on and on and on and on. And, 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 and unfortunately, the trend here is for people that are concerned about their privacy, not our friend. One of the problems is when technologists implement new technology like facial recognition cameras in stores, it actually costs them more to figure out how to make it more private than it is to just set it up and let it run. And so unfortunately, it's cheaper to have more data than it is to think about privacy concerns when uh, when you're implementing it. And, this, and that point goes for more than just stores implementing uh, facial recognition cameras. It goes for every time tracking technology is used to help a business. It, it is always harder right now to do things in a privacy-friendly way and more costly. And so those of us that are skeptics like myself uh, and have worked in, in business and industry uh, are not optimistic that businesses are going to be willing to spend more to protect people's privacy unless they're forced to do so. It's the same problem online. Face recognition is getting better and better on social media sites themselves as well as third-party sites that scrape images from what's publicly available. This was a worry in the Black Lives Matter protests. Facial recognition was being used to pinpoint certain people being present at the protests. The worst part is, sometimes someone else can upload a picture of you without your knowledge. Suddenly, you have no say as to what the rest of the world knows where you are or what you're doing. The algorithms are getting better at, at discerning from a, from a photo whether or not it's a good photo, whether or not we're staring straight into the camera, whether or not we took it or somebody else took it of us, they're getting better at identifying who we are in those photos. And so it is a it is another problem that's that's growing. And what we're seeing from, you know, we have another product called Delete Me, which removes uh, your personal information from these data broker databases. And what we're seeing is that more and more of these data brokers are enabling people to search for other people using things like just a phone number or just an email address. And pretty soon, we believe they're already testing search for somebody's full profile with just a picture. So you could snap a picture of somebody down the street, put it into a data broker's uh, search for and buy a profile, and then get all the information that's available uh, about that individual. It is turning into that brave new world, and we see it every day. Uh, there are just millions and millions of these people searches happening every day. And it used to be five years ago that you had to have a bunch of information about uh, an individual. You had to have full address and their full name and oftentimes their age to get the right results. And now uh, the data has gotten so good and it's been aggregated in such a fashion that you can search for people with any of these small identifiers and get a great result, which is a scary place for many individuals to be when they're easily searchable. If you spend any time online, it seems like everyone nowadays is asking for your email address. Not just when you shop, but to sign up for an account, to be added to a mailing list, you may be worried to give away your email address because you might get more spam. The same thing goes for your phone number, but the problem is actually bigger than this. 
The problem with uh, giving out your email to too many places isn't just the annoyance of spam. And you know, obviously, there's the same exact analogy for giving out your your mobile phone number and then starting to get all these robocalls. The problem is that your these these things, your 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 phone number and your email address are are things that we most of us have had for a long time. So they're very connected to our personal identity. And and companies know that, marketers know that, and they use them as identifiers to string together data sets about us. And then those data sets can get sold across different businesses and obviously they get they often get lost in data breaches. And so what happens is these pieces of data then get used for things like identity theft and uh, for hacking other accounts of ours. Um, so the less we use easily identifiable identifiers, for lack of a better word, the more secure we will be from these problems that really happen downstream in the future. And so that is that is an important reason not to to share as much information as most of us have been doing online. And and one of the the last thing I'd say is one of the issues is that we're all busy and there haven't really been good solutions from the normal uh, big technology companies we trust, you know, Google's and Microsoft's and Apple's. There haven't been really good solutions that let us control our identity and our privacy better. So I think, you know, we have to look elsewhere if we're going to find solutions that actually protect us. Rob has thought a lot about this. He founded a company called Abine, which deals with how we can protect ourselves. So I asked, what can we do? How can we stop ourselves from being tracked? We have a product called Blur. It is, and there's, there's similar products. I'd encourage everyone that's interested in protecting their privacy when they're shopping or uh, when they're surfing the web to you know, pick, pick and choose from what's out there. But effectively, there's there's two things that you can do that, that I would recommend that really work to get a reasonably uh, decent level of privacy when when you want to just be a normal person and use the web, go shopping and, and all that kind of stuff that we all uh, do. One of them is to install an ad blocker or a tracker blocker. And that's it's just a little thing that sits on your phone or your browser. It's pretty invisible. And it stops that information from flowing to all these uh, different ad networks and, and third parties that collect it. And then the other thing that our product Blur does, which you can also find elsewhere, is it creates uh, what I'd call, there's no perfect name for this, but aliases or what we call masked information. So virtual information. So instead of giving out your real email, most most of us are familiar with having multiple email addresses and we have a sort of a junk email or a work email and a, and a personal email. What, uh, what our product will do and, and what other products in this category will do is create a new email for you to share just with that site. And indeed, we, we go further and we'll create in our paid version of the product uh, new phone numbers so you can have a second line that you can share with, with a shopping site so they can call you and, and on, never uh, sell your you know, mobile number to, to spammers and robocallers and that kind of thing. And the same thing with credit cards. We'll create you a virtual credit card that isn't your real credit card number that you can use just like a, a regular credit card. And you can use that new email address just like a regular email address. And the reason why that's good is because it does two things. One, it, it doesn't share your real private and personal information with 
these other parties. So it never gets on their database in the first place. And it does protect your privacy because they don't link your email address to a whole big database of activities that are all linked up to a single identifier like your email address. And then lastly, if they, if they have a data breach, if the company that you've shared this, this alias information has a data breach and a hacker steals that database, you can imagine that instead of having your real email address being put on the dark web and your real credit card number and your real phone number and then resold to a bunch of other hackers, that information is basically useless and you can turn it off at any time from, um, from a dashboard. So it's a fairly advanced way to, uh, to control your privacy, but it's a, you know, we think it's a really interesting way and, uh, probably is, uh, is the way that more of us in the future are going to be securing our information. And indeed, if you look at like what Apple has done recently with Apple Pay and with sign in with Apple, they are starting to adopt this same approach where, you know, the only real way to protect your information is to not give it out in the first place. If you've applied for a job recently, you've probably also thought of another way online privacy can come back and bite you. That's through a Google search of your name. Some of us have some pretty embarrassing things up there on the web about us. That's not going to help your job prospects. Our data indicates that an incredible amount of searches are for other people. From what we can tell, about 11% of Google searches, more than one in every 10 times people go to Google, they search for somebody else's, somebody else's name. And, and that's because we're social animals. We're, we're, we're often looking up somebody that we met in at a business meeting or we uh, had a you know, romantic interest in or an old classmate or what have you, you know, that sort of thing. And so there's a tremendous amount of people searching for other people. And what's happened in the last six or seven years is that the results that Google shows are often from a group of about a hundred different data brokers that have profiles built up and, and which are constantly updated about almost every uh, adult in the United States. So if you Google your own name, you'll often, and, and, and the state you live in, if you have a common name, you'll often see the first set of results on the first page being effectively advertisements from these data brokers saying, hey, we have all this information. We know whether they have a criminal background. We know their net worth. We know uh, their family relatives and their past addresses. Click here to buy it. You can start as, for as little as 99 cents to get the full profile of the person that you want. And then you can pay us you know, $29 a month to do as many lookups as, as you want. So that's, uh, that's what's happening. And these data brokers are getting better at aggregating data about us. They're updating it more quickly. It has the implication that almost anybody, whether they're doing it for uh, just normal social purposes or they're doing it for malicious purposes, such as somebody that's an identity theft kind of perpetrator that wants to send us an email that has so much personal information about us that we just assume that it's the company that we signed up and created an account with. Uh, it's very dangerous because we get 
they're able to build trust based on how much information they can buy about us. Or uh, even worse, uh, somebody that wants to do us physical harm, somebody that got angry at us for some reason that we don't even know about. You know, for example, we work with the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Uh, the, the easy ability for anybody to get information about us has grown to the extent that if you can just simply type in a quick query in, into Google and for a dollar uh, have access to everything about us, that's a real problem. And that's what the, our Delete Me service tries to tries to help people out with, whether they choose the free service and do it themselves or have our privacy team for an annual subscription go remove remove your information from all those different databases. And your phone can portray you in another way, your location data. Chances are you carry your phone with you. We've seen phones tracking people in the movies, but this can also happen in real life, too. Your movements are being followed. Your phone company knows where you are. And stores can even tell when you've walked through their doors. Almost all of us are leaking out very, very detailed location data from our phones. In general, that data is somewhat more protected than when we visit a website and send all that information about that visit to a bunch of ad networks. However, it is collected and sold uh, oftentimes by your phone company or your ISP. There are not great ways to currently limit it. And so this is an area where, you know, we, we believe that more regulation is really required to make it easy for people to have a choice on whether their location data is something that they're comfortable sharing uh, more broadly or keeping very uh, close to the to their vest. So you might wonder what protections we have right now. Are there any privacy laws to help protect us? The privacy laws that we have now, uh, there's too few of them, and it depends where uh, where you live. For those of us in the United States, the best privacy laws that give us as consumers the most uh, rights today were, were just recently passed and, and, and put into law uh, a couple of years ago. That's called the California Consumer Privacy Act. And actually on the ballot for November, there's an update coming to that law, which further enhances and codifies consumers' rights to get access to data from different uh, companies we do business with and to control it or delete it. So that is the strongest privacy law in the United States. It's only available for residents of California today. There are other states that have passed privacy laws, Vermont among them, and Washington, I think Virginia. Some are in different states of discussion in the state legislatures. What is ultimately needed, everyone nods their head and agrees, that is in politics or in privacy policy is a federal law that covers everybody in the United States. That has not happened yet. I think there is a good chance, uh, perhaps a, a significantly good chance, that the next administration will pass some kind of national privacy law that gives consumers more rights, including rights to control their uh, mobile location data that either via their, their phone provider or, or others. So I think the good news is that privacy legislation is happening. It wasn't five years ago, and now it is. And it's picking up steam, not just here in, in different states in the United States, but also federally. And it's also picking up steam globally. 
uh, with the GDPR in the EU and in other uh, countries uh, beyond, uh, beyond the EU as well. Perhaps in the future, regulations could be written. I asked Rob what, in a perfect world, these regulations might look like to him. That is a, an interesting question. It's one where at some point it would be fun to do, uh, you know, another full discussion. Uh, I have obviously being, being a founder of a privacy company, my own opinions on it, but I would say that all of these laws have similar intents, which are, they all say, Hey, look, something is broken. Consumers don't have any rights to, uh, to their data. Uh, here's what we're going to do about it. You, the consumer, are now going to be allowed to request the data that a company has about you. So that's sort of one of the fundamental rights they're trying to enshrine into law, whether it's here in the U.S. or, or, or elsewhere. Secondly, then once you can get access to the data, what kind of controls do you have about it? Can you request the company to limit the use of that data just to the context in which you have a relationship with that company? That's another uh, typical kind of right that they're trying to argue consumers should have. And then lastly, the ability to delete it uh, or just to completely remove yourself from their database, which is, again, a right that does not really exist for consumers today. And so those are the the typical things that legislation, uh, both that's in, uh, in place today in California and that's being considered uh, nationally and, and, and globally, uh, tries to do. Now, I would argue, uh, somewhat self-servingly, that we as consumers, you know, that, that's good. It, it's necessary and it gives, it, it gives us a baseline to, uh, protect our privacy in, in a, in a way that is meaningful and, and particularly to deal with any company that refuses to respect our wishes that our data not be used in ways that we don't want that company to use it. I think the problem comes when you put all of the work that has to happen back down to each of us as individuals. Because if we have to do the work to reach out to every company, request our data, figure out which companies allow us to limit it, figure out when we can delete it, it becomes a very, very time-consuming and possibly frustrating uh, business. And I, last time I checked, most of us uh, don't don't have that kind of uh, time. So we think that, uh, and again, uh, I have a very biased opinion because I, I run a privacy services business, but we think that a marketplace of companies that can make this easy for for people, companies like us with Delete Me and and and, and other companies, should be competing to help consumers protect their privacy under new legislation where they actually have the right to do that. So we think both of those things are going to be necessary for there to be real change in the marketplace. It's true that navigating the online privacy world is not for the faint of heart, but knowing what problems are out there is half the battle. I hope that this gives you some idea on how how you can make your online and in-person world a little bit safer and more private of a place. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, to check out the discount code available to you at patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. 
Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard was produced by me. Others are clips from Summertime Instrumental 1 by Analog by Nature, Zena's Kiss, Medea's Kiss by MWIC, Mellow by Darkroom, and Mr. Wazzy by Roberto. These are licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. More information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.